All right. So a third of the way through on how do you help people change? How do you engage people with their counseling problems? And it's, it's really important to remember what I said, that sin is the reality in all of counseling, but it's, uh, it's, it's the reality in counseling in a complex way, not a simple way. And uh, those of us in biblical counseling sometimes have a bad rap for how we think about sin in counseling. When, when you say what I said and what I believe and what I stand by, that the issue in counseling is sin, people can understand it to mean a simple thing. That, well, what biblical counselors do is they're on a sin hunt to try to find where you're guilty of things in your life, and when they find that, they're going to whack you over the head with it, and then you move on. Um, and, and that is not true. Actually, I don't know anybody uh, in the biblical counseling world who, who acts that way. Um, that is based on a simplistic understanding of sin. If you, it, it'd, be this, it'd be the understanding of sin you would have about biblical counseling if you left after the last session. Well, he talked about sin, and he just said, hey, when you're guilty, you've got to confess your sin. But as I said at the very beginning, uh, there are other ways that sin manifests itself in counseling besides the sin of the counselee. And so what I want to talk about uh, in this sort of segment here is sin manifesting itself uh, in counseling when the counselee has been wronged by another person. Sin manifests itself in counseling when the counselee is guilty of sin, but sin also manifests itself in counseling when, some, when a counselee has been victimized by someone else. There are plenty of people who need counseling help for reasons other than their own personal sin. If you think about it, the potential for you and me to be wronged by other people is overwhelming. Uh, you can have people make stuff up about you, say terrible things about you. Some of you uh, in this room, uh, as a young child, you were molested by somebody you trusted. Um, there are, in this room, uh, victims of rape. In this room, there are victims of domestic violence. The, uh, the statistic on domestic violence is anywhere from 25 to 33% of women will be physically abused by the man in their life. Maybe it's a husband, maybe it's a boyfriend. Um, but, um, but anywhere from 25 to 33%. Those, uh, 
Those numbers are worthless because uh, domestic violence is one of the most underreported crimes there is. So, so it's certainly higher than that. But if we just take the highest published statistic of 33%, that means um, uh, a third of women. So we could count off in the room and just have a statistical, just count off every third woman in here has been physically victimized by someone that they're supposed to trust. Uh, some of you have had your houses broken into. Uh, some of you are married to someone who's committed adultery. Uh, some of you have kids who mistreat you and steal your money. I mean, we, we could go on and on and on, and whether it is the more minor or the more major, all of us knows what it is to be victimized by someone else. And some of the most difficult and painful counseling you'll ever do uh, will be with people who, who aren't seeking counseling because they're they're involved in this pattern of ongoing sin, uh, but because they've been the victim of someone else's pattern of ongoing sin. In fact, in my experience, um, the most painful, broken, damaged people uh, are people who experience the long chain of consequences that come from sexual victimization. Um, and it's I mean, you just, once, once you're victimized sexually, uh, it's just, it's a seemingly unstoppable contagion of responses that, um, that come out of that. So, one of the most significant ways that we'll be called upon to do counseling um, is not in helping people address their own sin through confession, but how do you respond in counseling? What's the biblical counseling solution when someone has wronged you? And there's nothing apparently that you can do about it. Well, there's all kinds of things that we would say about an individualized response in particular situations. But if you, if you boil it all down and you have... 45 minutes to talk about it, which is what we've got. We would have to say that the biblical counseling solution, the Christian response, when you have a counseling problem that is not your fault but is the fault of someone else, the Christian response is forgiveness. When, when we sin we are called upon to confess that sin. And when others sin against us, Jesus Christ would have us to forgive them. The most sustained section of teaching about forgiveness in the entire Bible is in a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in Matthew chapter 18. So look at uh, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21. 
This is a passage to all of us who have been hurt and abused and wronged by someone we love, someone we trust, someone we don't know. And I want you to listen to Jesus' words as they travel through time for 2,000 centuries and over continents, and they speak directly into our situation today. Here's what he says. He's, he's actually just completed talking about what we talked about last night, that Matthew 18, 15 to 20 passage, where if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. If he listens, great. If he doesn't, take some more. If he listens to them, great. If not, take it before the church. If he listens to the church, great. If not, remove him from the church. And right after Jesus has given instruction about that, the apostle Peter, the vocal apostle, clears his throat and says this, after he heard Jesus say that. Verse 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Peter's question makes a certain amount of sense. So he's just thinking, all right, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. And if, if, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. So Peter goes, okay, well, let's just think about this here. Um, you guys are married or have kids or you live in relationship or you've got parents. And you know what it is to live in relationship with somebody who keeps doing the same thing, right? So they sin against you, you go and you show them their fault. Great, you've won your brother. But then they do it again. So you go and you show them your fault and show them their fault and they hear you and great, you've won your brother, but then they do it again. And so Peter is thinking very practically. He's thinking about human relationship. Jesus, how many times does somebody do this to us and I forgive them? Seven times, right? That's the answer, isn't it, Jesus? Seems reasonable. Seven is the number of completion or the number of perfection. And if, if we do it seven times and we've done our duty and then the eighth time they're on their own. Right, Jesus? <clears throat> Jesus said to him in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or excuse me, seven times. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven times. Seven, 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 seven. Um, you're not supposed to get out your calculator there and do the math. Jesus is saying, you keep forgiving. You just keep doing it. And therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went. Um, I just lost my place. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we've just been thinking about all the ways it's possible for us to receive the wrongdoing, the sin of other people. We've just observed that people in this room have experienced tremendous pain from those we know and those we don't. And Peter asks a really relevant question for people like you and those we would help. Jesus, how often do I have to forgive these people? And Jesus says you have to keep forgiving them. And if you don't, my Father in heaven is going to lock you up and throw away the key. And it's not just forgive them. He says you have to forgive your brother from the heart. Now, I think I could win a debate that this is the most controversial passage in the Bible. I mean, if, uh, if you said you have to be in a debate about what the most controversial passage is in the Bible, I'm not sure which passage I would pick, but this would be on my short list. Because just think about the kind of victimization that we've talked about. Think about how this passage lands on the ears of a woman who's terrorized by her husband. Think about how this passage would land on the ears of someone who had their entire life savings stolen from them in a Ponzi scheme by the likes of Bernie Madoff. And they have no resources for the last decade or two of their life. I remember the first time I read this passage. I was a sophomore in high school, and I was uh, lying on my bed uh, reading this passage, and it was more than I sensed I could take. I was overwhelmed when I got to verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. I was overwhelmed. Because as I read that passage, I absolutely hated my mother. I'd been a Christian for a year at this point. Um, I was 15, I guess, ever how old you are when you're a sophomore in high school. And um, for the first 11 years of my life, my mother terrorized me. Um, I have, there's me and my twin brother Keith, and then we have two older brothers, uh, 13 and 11 years older, respectively. Uh, so, um, so there's four of us, but 
by the time we knew what was going on, they were a lot older and they had their stuff going on. And by the time we were in grade school, they were basically out of the house. Uh, my parents had divorced when I was three and they went to live with my dad and we stayed with my mom. Uh, my mom was a wildly promiscuous woman. Uh, she was a serial adulterer against my father. She met and fell in love with uh, her boss at work, actually. Um, and uh, they, they had a thing going for about four or five years. Um, and on Christmas, when I was three, um, my mom and her guy had worked out a plan uh, that they were going to get rid of their spouses and live happily ever after. So on Christmas night, um, my mom, when I was three, my mom kicked my dad out of the house. And he had known about the affair. He had tried to keep her from doing that, but she had made up her mind that it was all done. And on Christmas night, he moved out of the house. I actually have flashes of a memory of that night. I was three, so it was a little squirt. But, but I remember crying. I remember screaming. I remember a train that somebody got for Christmas. I remember holding that. I have flashes of that. And after my mom kicked my dad out of the house, um, her fella decided that he actually had a pretty sweet deal with his family, and he was actually not going to leave his spouse for my mom. Well, my mom was upset about that, but she thought that it was temporary. She thought he'd eventually come to his senses, so she did not get back together with my dad, and eventually, uh, after a period of time, she realized that she wasn't going to live happily ever after with this guy, and she started to drink. She came to be persuaded uh, that the reason he didn't want to um, be with her was because her kids were too young. She had these twin three-year-olds. Um, and so the reason she wasn't with this guy she loved was because these two, three, four-year-olds uh, walking around. And so my mom started hating us. She also started drinking. And um, I don't have but just a few memories of my mom being sober from that point until the time I was 12. And I have no happy memories with my mom. Uh, from, the, from the time I was a little kid to the time I was about 20, I have no good memories of my mother. It's all bad. It's all horrifying. She was an extremely violent drunk, and so she would uh, beat us up regularly. She tried to kill us a few times uh, in, in really actually painful and graphic ways that I won't, I won't go into, but but I mean, you'd have to characterize it as torture uh, of, of little kids. Uh, it was so bad. She, she moved us away from my dad because my dad would try to intervene and keep these things from happening. Um, and she didn't like that, so she moved us away. Uh, we wound up being in uh, foster care uh, for a good period of time. Um, I just... I, the, the only memories I have of my mom as a kid are scary ones, where she was hitting me or shooting at us or other awful things. And I, uh, all growing up, all I wanted to do was be with my dad. That's all I wanted. 
I, I love my dad. My dad was uh, the kindest and most gracious man I, I ever met. Uh, and I just wanted to be with him, and that was not possible. And one night, my mom really went crazy. This was when we were about 10. She really went crazy, um, really nearly beat us both to death. Um, the authorities got involved. Instead of sending us to a foster home this time, they connected us with, uh, uh, with my dad, who we hadn't seen in a while at that point. Um, and we were able to go live with my dad, which was what I wanted. So I'm 10 years old, and I'm back in the town where I was born and had lived for five or six years. Um, and I was with my dad. I was with my grandparents. And it's the first time, as, as I reflect on my childhood, that I ever remember feeling really happy. And my, um, my mom... Unbeknownst to me, uh, in fact, the last time I saw her when I was 10, she was lying in a pool of her vomit in our kitchen floor. That was the last time I saw her. I didn't think about her for two years. And then when I was 12, the phone rang, and it was my mom, and she was sober, and she wanted to see me and my twin brother, Keith. I did not want to see her. But Keith did. He was curious, and... She had moved to Louisville, Kentucky. We'd grown up in eastern Kentucky. She had moved to Louisville, Kentucky to go to a residential treatment facility there. And uh, she was going to come from Louisville on a day and um, see us. And we went to Long John Silver's for lunch. And uh, the fish here is better uh, than at Long John Silver's. And we went to, went to Long John's for lunch. And I just couldn't wait for it to be over with. She had some boyfriend that she was there with. And I... Didn't know him, but I didn't like him. Uh, and I just went through the motions, couldn't wait to get back to, uh, to Dad's house and live my life. I was simply going through the motions. And what started happening that day was an interest on her part in getting custody of us again. To her credit, at the time, she knew that she had really blown our life together and... Um, what she wanted was a redo. She wanted to, she'd gotten sober. She'd, in that two years, she'd actually been diagnosed with cancer. She'd had a hysterectomy. So she'd become a cancer survivor. She'd gotten sober. She'd moved to a halfway house. Um, and uh, she, was, uh, she was really sober and she thought she needed a redo and she wanted to prove to us that she could be a better mom. Well, that led her to lie and pull some legal dirty tricks. It's a long story. You don't want to hear about it, but uh, pull some legal dirty tricks that led to a judge's decision to restore us to custody with our mom. So when I was 12, um, the judge made this decision. And I remember the day, it was a cold winter day when my mom showed up with her loser boyfriend to um, move us to Louisville. And... Um, up until we, we lost um, we lost a child in between our son Carson and our uh, our daughter Chloe, um, and up until that day when I was 27, um, this day was the darkest day of my life. We, um, as my mom pulled up and we had to have our stuff ready, it was cold outside. 
my, the memory is so vivid in my mind of my dad coming in, and it's never cold here, but if you're where it's cold, uh, you can smell the cold on people. When they come in, you can actually smell cold weather when people bring it in. And my dad came in, he, wore, he had this big coat on, and I remember he was crying so hard he fell down on his knees, and I buried my face in his beard, and I begged him, Dad, don't let her take me. Don't, don't let me go. And there was nothing he could do. And we, um, we laid there and laid there on the floor crying for I don't know how long until it was finally time to get in this truck and go to Louisville. And we went to the big city of Louisville. I grew up, I grew up in Mount Sterling, Kentucky. So at the time it was population 900. So an exciting day was walking through the cow pasture and shooting cow piles with a BB gun. I'm not kidding. We thought that was a blast. I didn't have any other designs on life except that. And now all of a sudden I'm in Louisville living in a homeless shelter in downtown Louisville, uh, hating my mother uh, even more than I ever did. And I was miserable for over a year. I would cry myself to sleep. I would plot to try to get back home. I would, it was, it was miserable. Finally, I, there was all kinds of high schools in Louisville, and there was this one that I wanted to go to, and I decided that if I got accepted to it, I'd just realize that I wasn't ever going back to live with my dad, and I was just going to count down the days until I could get out of my mom's house. So I got accepted to the high school. At this point, my, my brother was happy to be living with my mom. I wasn't, so they had a really close relationship. I had a really bad relationship. My mom was always angry with me for not giving her a shot, and I just hated her. I hated her for being promiscuous. I hated her for stealing me from my dad. I hated her for abusing us. I just I hated everything about her. And my freshman year of high school, all my friends in the providence of God wound up being Christians. And they shared the gospel with me, and I believed. And uh, I, as I began to walk with Jesus, I, I did that for a year with all this conflict with my mom, and then I'm a sophomore, been a Christian for a year, and I read Jesus say to me, you have to forgive your brother from the heart. And I could not believe Jesus would say that. I couldn't believe it. I will tell you, that is the first and the only time since I've been a Christian, where I really believe that Jesus took something from me. Because my hatred for my mother was mine. It, it, it belonged to me. And I had a reason to hate this woman. If you're going to hate somebody, you hate the child-abusing, promiscuous, lying woman who steals you from your dad. You hate that woman. If you're going to hate somebody... That's a candidate. And she earned my hatred for her. She didn't do anything to make it easy on me to like her. And here is Jesus Christ in my bedroom, sophomore year of high school, saying, you... And I, I knew I didn't need... Anybody to tell me what the Greek behind the English translation meant? I needed no exegesis. 
You have to forgive your brother from the heart. That's what the Greek means. And it hit me between the eyes. And I knew immediately that I had to forgive my mom. And I also knew immediately that I had no idea what that looked like. I had no idea what that looked like. It took me a year to get on board with it. I knew I needed to do it, but it took me a year of wrestling to be like, all right, I'm going to forgive this woman. So junior year of high school, it starts. And I didn't know what it meant. I didn't have anybody to tell me what it meant. I went to kind of a weird church, and I didn't have anybody to tell me what it meant. And so what I decided was I'm going to be nice to her. That's a big deal. I mean, you're 17, 18 years old, I got almost a couple of decades under my belt of hating somebody that feels normal and natural. And so now I'm going to be nice to this person. So I started trying to do it. My mom didn't make my life easy doing it. But I started being nice to her. And um, uh, then, I I don't mind telling you how the story ends, Um, it took about a decade of that, of growing in what it meant to be forgiving, uh, growing... uh, in being kind when she was mean. Um, But my mom actually did become a believer uh, in Jesus Christ when I was 28. Uh, As it turns out, it was five years before she died. She died about four years ago. But but she became a believer and walked with the Lord. Um, But as I sat there sophomore year of high school, I didn't understand how to make this passage mean anything. I mean, a woman who'd done nothing but victimize me, I was now responsible for forgiving her. And I I, I tell you that story because I want you to know that when I agree with Jesus that we have to forgive those who have wronged us, that is a conviction I have that did not come cheap. That is a conviction I have that Jesus really had to change my heart about. And it took a long time to get this settled into my heart and to even begin to figure out what it meant. When you have been wronged, Jesus makes forgiveness of the person who has wronged you your responsibility. You know, it's interesting, the unforgiving servant here in the passage, you know what his problem was? His problem was he wasn't thinking about how much he'd been forgiven. Right? If you you read the text, he had a massive debt. Thousands of talents. It's more than a lifetime of earnings. Versus what he was owed, about 100 denarii. It's, um, you know, about a month, a couple months worth of wages. So a lifetime of debt is what he owed. What he is owed is a couple of months worth of wages. It's a comparatively small debt. He wasn't thinking about the massive amount that he had been forgiven. He was only thinking about the little things that he had coming to him. Do you know what that means? It means a refusal to forgive is arrogance. You show me somebody who stubbornly refuses to forgive someone who has sinned against them, 
and I will show you somebody who has no eyes to see the massive debt they've been forgiven and is only focused on the wrongs that have been perpetrated against them. Nobody, nobody will ever sin against you as much as you have sinned against the Lord. That means that God will never ask you to forgive more than he's already forgiven you. And that means when Jesus asks us to forgive others their sins against us, he's asking us to forgive out of the resources of forgiveness that he has provided for us. We swim in an ocean of forgiveness. And that means we have some thimbles of forgiveness to extend to other people when they wrong us. The, the biblical counseling solution when people wrong us is that we forgive them and that we forgive them from the heart. Now, people will say, what does that mean? I told you this is my question. I didn't even know what it meant. I didn't know what it meant to forgive someone, certainly someone who had been as awful to me as my mother was. I had no idea how to do it, so I just thought I'd be nice to her. And that, that was a starting place, but I, I think we can do better than that. And, and I think that we can do better than that if we understand what forgiveness is and what it is not. People will say this. I mentioned that, that, that some of the most stubborn cases of unforgiveness come from victims of adultery. They were going along, filling their vows, being trustworthy, and their spouse was not. And by the time you have a spouse that has confessed their adultery and wants to be restored, wants to have a whole marriage again, it's sometimes hard to have that wronged person be willing to forgive. And you'll hear people say this all the time. You're saying I need to forgive them, but I can't forgive them because I still feel angry. And if I say I forgive you, when I feel angry, I'll be a hypocrite. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. People say that all the time. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said that. But what that is, is that's a wrong understanding of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not a description of how you feel. You can still feel angry and sad about sin and still forgive because forgiveness isn't a description of how you feel. Forgiveness is a promise that you make. Think about forgiveness as a promise that you will make to someone. And you can think about the promise of forgiveness of being a threefold promise. People write about this a lot, and some people say, well, forgiveness is a twofold promise, or it's a fivefold promise, or it's a fourfold promise. I think if, if you can remember three promises of forgiveness, you'll remember essentially the things that the Bible has in mind when it talks about forgiveness. And these threefold promises of forgiveness are based on the way that God forgives us. So in Ephesians 4.31, it says, forgive as you have been forgiven. 
Colossians 3 says the same thing. So the way we've been forgiven is how we are to forgive. So three promises to underline that. The first promise is, when I say I forgive you, I promise not to bring it up and dwell on it in my mind. I'm not going to think about this all the time. I'm not going to dwell on it and punish you over and over and over again in my mind. So I'm not going to sit there and stew about this thing. So with my mom, I'm not going to go, but she lied to me all those years, and she hurt me all those years, and she, um, she lied to my dad and she, I mean, the nicest man I ever knew, and she stabbed him in the back every day they were married. I'm not going to dwell on that. To keep from dwelling, and this is the most important one, this is the most important promise, because if you, can, if you can fight to keep this promise, then the other two promises are a lot easier to keep. If we're not going to dwell on it in our mind, then we need Jesus' grace to think about other things. We need Jesus' grace to take those thoughts captive. And so in the biblical counseling world, we talk about the principle of replacement. When you are struggling to forgive someone and the thoughts that anger you and frustrate you about them flood your mind, you need new things to think. And so whether it's a spouse or a child or a parent or a boss at work or a coworker or a friend at church... Try using the principle of replacement. Try coming up with three or four or five good things about that person that you can pray for grace to think about when temptation hits. So if it's a spouse, maybe you're having some serious conflict, but you married them. So there's got to be something good in there. And so if you're trying to keep the promise of forgiveness by not dwelling on their sin in your mind then think about three things that are wonderful about your spouse. Maybe he's a great dad. Maybe she's a wonderful cook. Maybe, maybe he's an excellent provider. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. But fight to find three or four or five or six things, and when you're tempted to dwell on that thing in your mind, say, Lord, help me. Give me grace not to think about these things that I promise to forgive and give me grace to think about these other things and then start going through the list. The promise of forgiveness is a promise not to dwell on these things in your mind. The second promise of forgiveness is a promise not to bring it up to them to hurt them with it. So when I say I forgive you, I'm promising not only not to dwell on it in my mind, but not to use it at you to throw darts. Oh, well, this is just like last week when you lost your temper. Well, hold on a second. If you forgave them for that, you promised not to bring that back up to hurt them with it. And so now you've broken your promise. You've sinned against them, and you need to ask for forgiveness. Promise not to bring it up to you to hurt you with it. And the third promise of forgiveness is I promise not to bring it up to others. So I'm um, not going to go to the men's prayer breakfast on Saturday and rehash everything that we've talked about. I promise I'm not going to pick up the phone and call my mother and tell her what you did. Like, I made the promise, and I, uh, I'm really going to keep it. And if I don't keep that promise, then again, I've sinned against you, and now I need your forgiveness. 
we are to forgive the way we've been forgiven. In Jeremiah chapter 31, when God talks about the new covenant, he says, I promise not to remember your sins anymore. This doesn't mean that God gets some kind of divine amnesia. God has perfect knowledge of all events, past, present, and future. So, so when he says... I don't remember your sins anymore. It doesn't mean that he really has no access to the information. He, he means I don't remember them against you anymore. I don't hold them to your account anymore. As the Psalms say, as far as the east is from the west, so far will I remove your sins from you. That means infinitely removed. You can't get any further from the east than from the west. That's how far God removes our sins from people. And so... We forgive not by really working hard never ever to remember as though when we think about it we've sinned, but we're not going to remember them against that person anymore. That's what forgiveness is. And that is the counseling solution to sin when we've been victimized by other people. Now, uh, this gets complicated because what, what do you do when, you're, when someone has sinned against you, but they don't think they've sinned? What do you do when someone sins against you, and they know they've sinned, but they won't confess it? All those things are complicating matters that we need to think about and talk about, and we don't have time to do that here today. But um, maybe we can talk about it during the Q&A. But, but the point is um, that where we're moving towards is forgiveness. And we are not allowed, no matter how bad the victimization has been, and I, I say this as one who knows what it is to be victimized, we're not allowed to say, I will disobey Jesus because you hurt me. The biblical counseling solution to sin in this second instance is to forgive others where they have wronged us with the confidence that Jesus will never ask us to forgive more than he's already forgiven us. All right. That is the biblical counseling solution to sin when the counselee is guilty of sin. That's the biblical counseling solution to sin when the counselee's been a victim of sin. But we need to talk about how to help people change in a third